Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, and Patriots Against CPS Corruption invites you to attend their March for Texas Children. DFPS has failed the families of Texas. The Texas Special Committee on DFPS has also failed the parents. It's time to make your voices heard and surround yourself with those on the same mission as you. Join us on the March for Our Children, September 21st, 2022, starting at 1 p.m. at 701 West 51st Street, Austin, Texas, 78751. I have a return guest. I have attorney Connie Regally back on. Uh, she was last on the show season two, episode 98, and season three, episode 63. And I just had her on about a week and a half ago. That was season three, episode 70. We had talked about social media being a threat to the establishment, and we're going to elaborate on that, as well as when Connie was running for juvenile court judge. And she discovered during the process things about the county that were kind of off, like a juvenile justice center. So I welcome you to the show, Attorney Connie, how are you? Good, thank you very much. And it's good to see you again and hear you. Oh, it's good to have you back on. So, you know, it, it seems like you should be allowed to talk about what happened in your court case or during court that day. Yeah, so I know the last time we were together, I spent quite a bit of time talking about the technicalities of how I was uh, basically defrocked <laughs> after 28 years of serving hundreds and hundreds of families across the state of Tennessee and actually in other states. I'd also been in Maryland and uh, South Carolina, Kentucky, where I had been able to reach out and help other families. And I continuously fought DCS, the agency, and all Ultimately, they were able to put together a scheme that they could come after me, and then they got another county to engage in it as well, and got the Williamson County DA to have an indictment presented for uh, being an accessory to custodial interference, something which never an attorney has been charged with in the state of Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And because they would change the language of the law, they were able to proceed against me. So, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about that. There's a lot of technical details there that are legal about how the judge rewrote the statute, uh, when the state legislators uh, changed the statute to actually narrow it in 2004, and essentially what the judge does did was retroactively modify it to expand it, which mm -hmm. is just unheard of and totally unconstitutional. So, uh, so, you know, that is, I've told the story a few times. I'm going to keep telling it. I'm probably going to lay it out in like a, <laughs> in like mm -hmm. a schematic at some point to really help people understand it. But I know we spent some time talking about that. So they were able to uh, get me convicted of two felonies and a misdemeanor accessory and uh, facilitation. And then as soon as I got a quote unquote felony, even though I call it a fake felony, they mm -hmm. sent me a fax from the Tennessee Supreme Court and told me that my license to practice law was suspended summarily with no hearing, even though I did a motion and a petition and said, uh, look, this is not a good, uh, this is not a good, you know, there are several errors here. They really would not hear that. So, 
it has been a real challenge. We ultimately had a sentencing hearing. Uh, the judge sentenced me to two years of probation and 30 days in jail. However, uh, he admitted that the matter is going to be uh, on appeal and I could stay on bond pending an appeal, which it is an ROR bond. So, you know, here I am a dangerous felony out walking the streets, same as I was two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. uh, since 2018, <laughs> you would think, uh, uh, you know, I must not be too big of a threat to society, but what they were able to do was to totally discredit me and humiliate me during an election year when I had decided to challenge an incumbent. Mm -hmm. So they were very upset. I had used social media and had used Facebook and used Facebook lives to talk about the story and talk about it while it was happening, except for a short period of time when there was a uh, gag order. Uh, but I've been, because I know they're using social media against me, I have kind of stepped back a little bit until we get through our last court date and it goes on appeal. Jeez, I mean, that sounds so stressful. I, I don't know. I mean, how are you holding up? Uh, well, it's a little dizzy because as soon as they sent me a fax suspending me, I had, first of all, I had like 10 days to send a certified letter to every person and attorney that I had pending cases on. And that was like 40 or 50 cases. So I had to, you know, organize all of that. And then within another 10 days, I had to withdraw from all pending cases. Uh, and then, you know, I had to close out cases if there was any pending retainers, transfer cases. I had another attorney that had been working in my office and, you know, we went ahead and relocated her and sent some cases with her. So it's, it was a very stressful 30 days just to make sure that I had taken care of all these technicalities. Because if you don't take care of those technicalities, even though you're not like actively interfering with anybody, they can use those technicalities to stop you from maybe reinstating your license at some point. Mm -hmm. So it is, uh, you know, on the other hand, there's a little bit of relief in that, you know, I have been out pounding the pavement for 30 years and getting up and, you know, getting out the door at seven o'clock in the morning. And sometimes, you know, get getting in the car and driving two hours to court across the state. So I am, I, you know, I think I deserve a little bit of a sabbatical anyway, and I am mm -hmm. using that. And since it's summer, you know, spending more time with my grandkids, but I am still working. I am reorganizing my office. I'm going to step back into using my expertise in, you know, in consulting or even just case prep or doing mediation for people, you know, so that I can continue to be some service. But as I move through this phase, I have said for the past two years that I cannot do the kind of changes that, that need to be done in the child welfare and family court system one case at a time. Mm -hmm. I just can't do it, right? I mean, I've, I've had over 40 appeals where I've helped make laws, define laws, narrow laws. I've had a couple circuit court cases uh, on federal civil rights issues that were pretty instrumental in getting some laws changed. But now I can see this big picture that, you know, so many legislators don't even understand. So I've got to, I've got to sit down. I've got to figure out how do I use that? so that we can we can look at this more globally right this is this is not about me getting a crown on my head i will i will say during the course of my trial 
there was a young reporter with, uh, what was he with, uh, I don't know, one of the Williamson pages, you know, they wanted to discredit me so bad. And, you know, he talked about me being such a, you know, trying to do reform. And he turned to me and he said, have you ever thought, Connie, that maybe you aren't the right person for this? And I just turned and I stepped back and I looked at him and I said, you know what, let me tell you something. I will gladly pass this sword along to anybody else who wants to carry it because this is not an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to stand up and say, we need global changes is not fun. And that's why a lot of attorneys just sit back, just let it happen, just let it flow you know, just let the judiciary do whatever they want and just take their punches and roll to the next case without even a, without even flinching. I mean, it's crazy. So, Mm -hmm. so, you know, so to your question, uh, I think I'm okay. I have to kind of check once in a while. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, you know, you're holding up pretty good every time I talk to you. Thank goodness. Oh, yeah. Well, it's an adventure. You know, it is a, it's a process that it had to happen. It had to, you know, we had to have something that looked like this ultimately, because Mm -hmm. again, one case at a time was not going to do it. I have now been able to put together. So I've had time now to sit and do some research and kind of put together sort of the, the players in the background who have been interfering with the ability for there to be changes in the system. And those who've been trying to shut me up for 12 years. So I've been doing background checks on them. I've been pulling out their connections. I've been looking at political funding. I've been looking at law firms who are engaging in politics. So that schematic is going to be a whole nother thing for me to talk about at some point. I know now how these players are interrelated. And Mm -hmm. it is, I mean, it's all politics. It's all politics. And it seems like it's very incestuous. Everybody knows everybody everybody is in everybody else's business. Well, you know, there's a certain club, there's a certain echelon of the club, right? And, Mm -hmm. you know, there are ways within the legal system, you know, there, they, that whole system, which you have to understand, I mean, people really need to understand it's a very, very closed system because you can't even operate inside of it unless you have a law license and your law license is controlled by six people who sit at the Tennessee Supreme Court. So if in their opinion, you are out of hand or if their opinion, you are too challenging and too aggressive or, you know, or they don't like the things you say on social media, those six people can cut off your livelihood right? Mm -hmm. And no matter how good you've been at representing people, no matter how well you articulate the law, no matter how well you prepare your cases so that the law applies to them, they still have that control. And if one person in just in that uh, that elite group of people, which, so you go beyond the six Supreme Court justices, and then you have these interconnections with other people, right? You have the huge major law firms and the huge major law firms, they're not just doing like corporate law. They're doing lobbying, right? Mm -hmm. They're doing, um, they're protecting a lot of 
people who have a lot of money who do a lot of political contributions so that they are, these large law firms are engaging in political influence, right? Mm -hmm. And so then if you take people and you put them in those law firms, you culture them within those law firms, and then you put them in other places, such as in the judiciary, right? Mm -hmm. And now you're creating a certain uh, uh, persona, right? And you're with certain connections that are uh, influencing the actual practice of law. Well, as you were saying, the judiciary is a closed system that controls the people within it. And the public doesn't really, I don't think they can grasp that. No, they can't. And I'll tell you, I went to law school late in life. I had already, um, I had already um, uh, in, had my life invested in other activities. And I am going to, sorry, this, I'm so sorry. Okay, so um, uh, I had another business. My family had a business. And so when I went back to law school, I really entered law school thinking, I'm a pretty smart girl. You know, I made good grades. I'm very organized. I like to help people. This will be a great place for me to have a second career. <laughs> and I went back part time. I worked through it. I mean, I worked really, really hard. And then I became a lawyer and it was so shocking. It was so shocking because it is such a, it's such a closed system. I mean, the dynamics within there, you have, and you have to operate within those dynamics and you've got these, you know, the Tennessee Supreme Court controls your licensure. doesn't matter how smart of a lawyer they are. If they don't, if they think that, and obviously I'm a good example. It doesn't have to be lie, cheat or steal to take an attorney out of circulation. It can be the fact that they're being very vocal on social media and talking about all the problems within the system. And it's not like I'm going around saying that judges are thieves and, and you know, they have hookers and, you know, <laughs> they're getting arrested for crimes, which some of them are. It's like, I'm just saying they're signing ex parte orders. They're ignoring mm -hmm. a, a constitutional rights. They are not following federal law when it comes to, you know, re reunifying families or putting children with relatives. I mean, I'm just calling out conduct that should not be within the system that should not be tolerated. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's what they shut me up for. And it's really quite frightening. And so now you, we have social media platforms and you would think the public servants would want to know the heartbeat of the public. You would mm -hmm. think that for improvement, I mean, how many times do they pay thousands and thousands of dollars for like, you know, test groups, right? Like for, for to do tests and surveys. And it's like, just all you have to do is go on Facebook and follow one of these groups about families who've been abused within the system. And you can get a lot of ideas on how to improve the system. So it's, um, it's been a, a real challenge. I, you know, I've worked super hard. I've worked really hard for people. I've worked all over the state. You know, one of the ways I kind of dodged some, uh, some retaliation is because I prepared myself to be able to walk into any court across the state of Tennessee. So I didn't have to focus on one little district or one little county. You know, there are 95 counties. I've probably been in 35 of them. Mm -hmm. So it's a challenge, but people need to understand that the attorneys have to work at the mercy of the system. Mm -hmm. 
Right. A lot of people think, well, you know, my attorney's not doing this and we're waiting for that. And it's really the judiciary that's sometimes holding things up. Oh, absolutely. Or just the way the system works. Like, you know, another attorney will impose it. And so, you know, you have to pay your attorney thousands of dollars to walk in a courtroom and then it gets continued Mm -hmm. or, you know, a witness doesn't show up or, I mean, it's just, or the judge denies certain evidence to be presented. So, you know, it's a, it's, it's, people don't understand, uh, you know, just how difficult it is and how important it is to really stay out of court. So, um, so I have really used the social media platforms. I've also used it to kind of gather people to be able to make their voice heard just like you have. And so that we can get these stories out there and people can really express them. They can try to explain what's going on so that when people go to the polls, and this is a really big election year, both at Mm -hmm. the state and the federal level, that they can question those things. You know, they have this past year, I wanted every judge challenged in my uh, voting district. Mm -hmm. And we had four judges, we had a DA, I started reaching out to attorneys. Well, obviously those attorneys tattletailed on me (laughs) and spread the rumors around because that became another reason for retaliation that I was Mm -hmm. trying to have sitting judges challenged. And, you know, ultimately when they set my criminal trial, they set it right in the middle of the early voting um, uh, that was going on in our community. And I ran for juvenile court judge. Uh, I really wanted that position. I thought that I could do a much better job than the judge who's in there now who was appointed and she's not, she does not have the temperament. She is very mean and rude to people all the time. She puts people down. She locks children up. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a very hostile environment. Mm -hmm. And so I was really wanted to, uh, so I ran for that position and worked really, really hard, but, uh, you know, they came in and they sabotaged it. And in the, Mm -hmm. in the meantime, one of the things that I found out was that our community is building a new juvenile justice center. That's like a $59 million project. I mean, this is huge and it will house more children so you can put more children in jail now now and keep in mind we are not detroit or memphis here we are williamson county tennessee this is the highest educated county in the whole state of tennessee we have more doctors professors lawyers entrepreneurs business people here than per per uh, uh, capita than any other place in this entire state. And we're building a bigger, better jail to lock people up, especially children. And as I started pulling out all of the paperwork, everything that's related to this juvenile justice center, I found out that they were going to have quote unquote mental health beds. So, you know, you have to go, oh, well, that's a good thing. Now they're like, you know, going to treat mental health. Well, here's the problem. All it takes is for a juvenile court judge to adjudicate a child as severely emotionally disturbed. It does not take a doctor. It does not take an examination. The judge can do it based on the child's own, what she observes from the behavior, what other witnesses say. She can even do it if she doesn't like the parents. I've seen her make adverse rulings against children because she doesn't like the parents and she just mm-hmm. gets a bad attitude against them. 
So they're going to have mental health beds. And so these mental health beds, if a judge adjudicates a child as severely emotionally disturbed, she can put that child in the legal custody of the Department of Children's Services, and then she can house that child in her own facility. And if she does that, she will get nearly $500 a day for a child who is adjudicated severely emotionally disturbed, which if you look at 25 beds, that's a half a million dollars a month. Now, why is that important? Because part of the funding for this project is private equity. So private equity means that you have to have a profit because you have to pay back the investors at a premium rate higher than the regular market rate. So you have to have revenue streams and you have to have a market. The other part of that is that I believe this is opening the door for private contractor to come in and be and start monetizing the children in a for-profit environment with private contracts. And I've got a pretty good idea. I mean, I know who the private contractors are with the Department of Children's Services. We have huge private contractors like Youth Villages is 120 million, Omni's about 80 million, Camelot's about 60 million, all every year. So they are monetizing, and this is only 9,000 children. I mean, when you think about it, you've got 9,000 children and you've got an, a billion dollar budget. <laughs> the Department mm. of Children's Services budget and now just in the state of Tennessee is a billion dollars. So you are, that's the number of children that you basically are servicing and housing and providing services for. So it's huge, right? The children mm -hmm. are, the children have a huge price tag on their head. So you can monetize those children. You can keep them in the facility. You know, you can put them there. You can say it's short term and then you can extend it by a judicial order, which is totally contrary to like, to like general mental health treatment, even acute mental health treatment. Because for instance, we have Vanderbilt University Medical mm -hmm. Center in Nashville. It's one of the largest medical centers, one of the largest university hospitals. It's probably in the top 10 in the United States. And they have a psychiatric hospital for adults and they have one for children. Well, if you go to either one of those facilities or you take a child to those facilities on an acute psychosis or acute psychotic breakdown, you, seven days, that's it. That's all they're gonna let you stay there is seven days. And, and honestly, they'll kick you out in three days unless they have some real serious concerns about suicidal or homicidal ideation. And then they might keep you seven days to get, but to be able to stay past then is just crazy. They won't do it. So, uh, so we're in a very frightening place. Um, they could not let me be judge because I would not be adjudicating children randomly with such a severe mm -hmm. mentally disturbing situation. And uh, I've seen how she has used that against families and children. So it's quite, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, it's, it's, just opened up a whole terrible thing where I've just been started peeling back the layers and investigating all the people involved with the funding, all the people involved with the putting together of this uh, system. And I'm going to keep working on that. So now that they've defrocked me, I have lots of free time. I can sit and I can do uh, research. I can write mm -hmm. up uh, little blogs about it. Most of them I'm saving until I'm ready to release them all. But yeah, mm -hmm. there's, um, there's a whole lot bigger story here to tell. Well, you know, that is just, you know, it's just very disgusting because that's all America is known for is building prisons. Right. Right. <clears throat> yes. 
I think that the stats show that, you know, we house 25% of the prison population and we only have 5% of the of the general population of the world, but we have 25 of the entire prison population, we have 25%. So, you know, that's pretty crazy. I mean, when you think about, you know, we're supposed to be the, the civilized developing country, but, you know, we've monetized them. We've monetized humanity. We've monetized, you know, fetal tissue, which is, mm. you know, the other thing that is really is, you know, it's just makes you ill when you mm -hmm. understand what has happened. But, you know, we, the, the Roe v. Wade, the turning over of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court with this new case has really upset a whole industry uh, that is associated with the monetization of fetal tissue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, exactly. Um, this will be interesting how all that plays out with each state. <sighs> yes. Yes, okay. it will. Yeah, there are huge, huge, huge industries on, for instance, amniotic tissue to replace mm -hmm. human tissue and on in wound treatment, et cetera. So, you know, you have to say, where do they get all that amniotic tissue? You know, it's not just, it's not just the limbs and the organs, you know? So anyway, that's a little bit of a diversion there. And, you know, right. I want to not get too far afield because I want people to really over and over and over, I want to express to them the huge concerns I have about the effects on people and on families in the judicial system and how out of control it's gotten, how the legislators have gotten out of touch with what laws we need. Uh, they have, uh, they're trying to micromanage by putting in certain laws to criminalize behavior that would not otherwise be criminal. And I think that's a, a very dangerous step to take, right? I mean, it's, mm -hmm. You know, if you go back and you look at, for instance, prohibition and in prohibition, you know, we criminalize taking a drink and and selling, a, a you know, a beer or a whiskey and people, you know, making moonshine. We criminalized all of that. And, you know, and when you think about it in and of itself, I mean, trade, taking a drink or selling a drink or selling whiskey mm -hmm. is not criminal conduct. It's not morally criminal. I mean, it's it, you know, go back to the 10 commandments, right? I mean, it's mm -hmm. not, it's not murder. It's not stealing. It's not coveting. It's not, I mean, mm -hmm. it is truly um, just, just human conduct that they criminalize and they're doing the same thing to families. Now the mm -hmm. whole contempt of court, like they'll make a court order that says, you know, return the child on Tuesdays at 2 PM to the police station and it's someplace 50 miles from where you live. And if you end up 15 minutes late, you could go to jail for 10 days. I mean, that's just like, that's so ridiculous that they even, that we even have to think like that here in the mm -hmm. United States. It's, you know, and, and I've, I've defended people and, you know, I had a dad that I worked with and he had to drive like an hour and a half to deliver and pick up his children. And, you know, and he never knew what traffic was going to be like. And right. he tried to send a text message and he'd say like, uh, you know, I'm running 10 minutes late. And every time he was a minute late, she would just like leave or, you know, not turn over the kids or file contempt or call her lawyer. And the judge was buying into it. And it, mm -hmm. and it's just, it's, it's crazy. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And that's also a waste of court time with these people doing things like that. 
Yes, it is. And when you look at now about on the state level, about a third of all cases are family related. And that includes, I mean, that includes looking at contracts and car accidents and medical malpractice. And if you take every kind of case, every, you know, nuisance case, every, I mean, just uh, public records case, you pile all those cases together. And basically a third of those are family related cases. And the same thing in the court of appeals. And, you know, I've seen the statistics on that, that a third of those cases that go up for the reviewing court or family court cases. And it's so subjective, right? Mm -hmm. It's just so subjective. And then they, they, they create a, um, a hostile, um, they create a, I, I mean, not a hostile environment, a hostile narrative, I think is the best way mm -hmm. to say it. They create a hostile narrative against one, uh, usually one, uh, one side, one person which is just, um, it's crazy. I mean, and it's, it's true. I mean, somebody may have some behavior or something that was not ideal, but it shouldn't characterize everything about them, you know, especially right. when you're talking about children. I mean, we all make mistakes dealing with our kids and, and, you know, when you're talking about cutting a parent out of the life because they're 15 minutes late, and mm -hmm. dropping them off and picking them up. I mean, and not only that, what kind of message are you sending to those kids? Like to be hyper, that hyper vigilant in mm -hmm. all your life, in all your activities in life, because that's what happens. Because children don't understand it's just this one little scenario, this one little issue. And so they become hypersensitive and hyper vigilant on all kinds of things, you know, related to their day to day life. Oh, exactly. Yeah, because they're learning from that parent on how to behave, you know, and I don't know. I mean, you know, I hear this stuff and I hear other parents that call me with with issues and I'm thinking, you know, not to be horrible, but this is not a safe world to even bring kids into. Well, it's just not safe. It is not. And that's why we have to design systems for alternatives to keep um, to keep their intimate functions <clears throat> more uh, neutralized, I guess is the best way to say it, right? Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, for instance, I have said ever since I started entering law, I thought, you know, it was like it was like you do y'all do everything backwards in law. So, you know, they implemented this thing where if people were going through a divorce, they had to do a parenting class when they filed for a divorce, right? If they had mm -hmm. children. And I'm like, why aren't you making people do a class when they get married? Mm -hmm. Right. Know? Why aren't you teaching them? This is what your financial balance is going to have to look like. This is what mm -hmm. raising children is going to look like. You know, why aren't you making them pay $45 to do a four hour class before they can turn in that marriage license and say we're married. Now, some people will cheat on it, you know, of course, but at least they've had that opportunity to know going into it, if you get a divorce, it's going to cost you your entire life savings, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the cost, the emotional and the financial cost that's involved with that whole process is, is just crazy. So, you know, it's like everything is backwards. And it's just like mm -hmm. with DCS, taking children, expiring children out of the homes of families. I mean, and you're punishing children, you know, this is like, mm -hmm. 
it's like incarcerating children. They're the ones who are being victimized by this process. And I don't know why people think that's okay to put them in the home of a stranger that they've never met before. Mm -hmm. I mean, people who've had a 10 hour course in fostering, I mean, that's all we really know about them. And maybe they do a background check, maybe they don't, but you know, that's, you know, that's quite frightening. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, I would expect any stranger who was going to be a babysitter for me to probably have more than a 10 hour course or to be able to do a background check or something. And, mm -hmm. but no, they don't at all. No, no. And so much goes wrong. <laughs> the stories I have heard are just heartbreaking and disgusting. Mm -hmm. They are. Mm -hmm. They are. And the damage to children is is insurmountable. I mean, mm -hmm. it is, um, <clears throat> it's permanent. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's a very important, I did a lot of psychology before I went into law and studying personality disorders such mm -hmm. as narcissism and borderline and, you know, histrionic and paranoia. I mean, a lot of those personality disorders develop when the child is going through that, you know, maturity, right? So mm -hmm. just based upon what their level of trust is, how they deal with the world, how they see themselves in the world, how they deal with conflict in the world, all of those things that they're dealing with between ages 12 and 18 is when they begin to form these unhealthy responses, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, and I've talked to, you know, psychiatrists and psychologists about this, especially like borderline personality. Mm. You know, when you see borderline, mm. it's because they, they had such ill adjustment during their ages of 14 to 17 is a critical mm. time. And we're right. doing a terrible job with children who are, um, who are disruptive or, you know, out of sorts or something in that age gr group, we're not really helping them understand that this is, this is a lifelong affecting phase of their life that they're going mm -hmm. through. And, and they're going to pay for it for the rest of their lives. And I don't know if these judges aren't getting it. They don't care. It, you know, kids for cash. Yeah. It's, I mean, children are definitely monetized and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's sad and frightening. Um, uh, you know, whew, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, we, I'm, a, I'm an old person. I remember the days that every small town had one or two factories, right? They all mm -hmm. had factories and nobody has a factory anymore. And mm -hmm. so, you know, what they have to do to make a living to survive all has to do with just managing humanity. I mean, mm -hmm. you're lucky, maybe you can work at a bank or a grocery store or, you know, or uh, be a mechanic or something, but you're not really building a car, you're just fixing it, right? So if you mm -hmm. can, and you end up working for the government, then you're also managing humanity. You know, you're either working for CPS and you're taking people's children for money or, you know, even sadly, the education system, you know, that educating them for money. Now, you know, I'm not saying bad things about teachers because I know teachers are very sensitive these days, but it's, um, you know, but it's true. All we're doing is managing humanity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And not very well. There's so many dysfunctional individuals out there. Yeah. 
There mm -hmm. are, there are. And, um, you know, we've got, uh, you know, we've all got, at least I've got grandchildren coming into this world. You know, I see people posting on Facebook, all their beautiful babies being born. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh my gosh, these poor babies. <laughs> right, I know. Yeah. I'm like, they, yeah, they bless their hearts. I hope they have. I hope God's given them a really perfect spirit and strength because, you know, they're being born at a really bad time. I, as far mm -hmm. as I see it, it's a very, it's a very hard time, you know, to look at a future for children, but we have to because of the continuity of, of mm -hmm. you know, the plan, I guess. But, um, you know, it's, it's, we've got to, we have to, we have to give people more early um, tools to understand how to pick a spouse, pick a partner, um, uh, communicate with their boss, you know, develop uh, incentives at work and, and goals at work and, and really help them work with people instead of against them. And again, I'm going to circle all the way back and I'm going to say, that's why I think social media is so important mm -hmm. is so important you know i've been very active for probably six years and you know there are a lot of people i just kind of saw in passing i watched people for a long time i've met you through social media you know uh you've been able to watch me how i respond to people i mean you you actually learn more about people in social media and then decide kind of whether or not you're going to trust them or become more of a relationship than you do if you're going to like a county picnic, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, let's say you go to a county political picnic and you're meeting people and, oh, hello, how are you? And, you know, and you, you know them for 30 seconds, right? Mm -hmm. And you don't know how they're responding. You don't know what their family's like. But with, but with Facebook, a platform like Facebook and social media, you can get to know people. You can watch what their thoughts are. I mean, how, I think it's amazing, actually. I think it's an amazing place. And mm -hmm. I did a lot of, I did a, um, my undergraduate with a lot of social psychology and I did a lot of graduate work in, in uh, so, uh, organizational psychology and groups. And I think social media is an amazing place to be able to learn the human soul. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a big mistake for people who are in public service to ignore it. They mm -hmm. should be embracing it. They should be watching it. They should be understanding that it's a reflections of society's problems. And then the people who have the ability to do something about it, they should be testing the system and making new laws and new challenges to deal with it. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. Well, I'd like to have you back on again. And, um, you know, if people want to contact you, is your contact information the same? Yes. And I will say I heard you uh, earlier today talk about a rally, I think, in Texas. Uh, I do want people to know that we are going to Family Forward Project on Facebook has is doing two events. They're doing one in Missouri and then one in Illinois on August the, let me get those dates, make sure I'm correct, Monday, August the 22nd is Jefferson City, Missouri, and August the 29th is in Springfield, Illinois, and I have the details of those events up on the Family Forward Project. I've got great leaders in those states who really have already, they're ready to reach out. 
I have a state legislative a training uh, uh, video with uh, kind of in a PowerPoint that I am creating and a video program too, so people understand their state legislators a little bit more so that we can prepare. And I want everyday people prepared to be able to go to their state legislators and talk to them. And then we also need to look at on our state and local level, just be willing to talk to people, get people more involved politically. If you have not been involved politically yourself, time to step up and do it. And, you know, I'll, I'll confess, I was probably 40 before I did it. So if, if you're, you know, 35 years old and you don't know who the politicians are around you, just it's time to step up and do it. And let's have, um, you know, let's, let's keep moving this nation in the right direction. I agree. Thank you so much for coming on. And I'll have you back on too. So um, uh, don't jump off. Slam the Gelves, a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in the family courtrooms. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. Please join us again here with Attorney Connie and other exciting guests. Thank you again for coming back on. Thank you.